You have purchased us. You have bought us. You have made a covenant with us by blood that cannot be broken. And so we, we seek you, the God who makes promises and keeps them, and pray that we would, uh, we would enjoy them, that we would walk in them, that we would live according to your covenant. We pray your blessing on our service. We pray your blessing on the preaching of your word and ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what your spirit has for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, if you're here visiting or it's your first time in a while, we're doing something kind of different right now. Normally we're going through books of the Bible. We will be finishing up our series in 1 Corinthians. We'll start back into that in February. Uh, but now we're taking a few weeks out of our church's existence uh, to look just at communion, the Lord's Supper. Um, and so uh, my point a couple weeks ago when we started this series, really I, I had two, I think, was one, that communion is a real way for you to meet with God. And the good news, God wants to meet with you. He desires to meet with his people. And then the second point that I made two weeks ago was it's good for us to take this more seriously than maybe we sometimes do. Uh, and last week we did things a little even more different. Uh, you got a church history class instead of a sermon. And my hope in taking you back through some of the church's history and in the church's thinking on communion was to show you simply that you're in good company if you think that this is really important. <laughs> okay? That Christian saints have been taking this like it's really important for quite a while. And of course, the opposite of tr opposite is true. Uh, if you are not taking communion very seriously and see it as kind of an optional interruption that you'd really just take it or leave it, you don't have a whole lot of friends throughout church history that want to sit next to you, okay? Like, you're, you're kind of alone. It's been the habit of Christ's church to come and meet him at a table. Um, and, and the church is our family, even though it's a dysfunctional family, to be sure. Uh, to see your family values throughout the centuries can be helpful. It can be instructive. The church has found this holy meal to be very important. Well, so now we're going to go back even further, uh, pre-church, B.C., to the history of Israel as we see it in the Old Testament to show that it's not just the church that found holy meals to be something of importance, but Israel, and more importantly, the God of Israel, has found meals to be very important and effective. So this week I'm going to take you through about six Old Testament passages, uh, all from the Torah, first five books of Moses, to show you how God has been warming up to this meal. He's been, he's been preparing the people of God to meet him at a meal for a long time, all the way back since the garden. Now, next week, we're going to do something similar with the New Testament. We're going to do kind of a survey of New Testament passages uh, about communion, and I think that'll be really good, so come back. Um, but the first passage I want to point you to is in Genesis 1. Yeah, that's right. We're going all the way back that far. In Genesis 1, it covers the six days of creation. Chapter 2 begins with Sabbath rest. And the climax of those six days in chapter 1 is God giving out menus to everything he'd made. And I mentioned this before we took communion on January 1st. Um, but Genesis 1.29, it goes like this. It says, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be food. The important thing is, I have given you, look, I've given you a feast. Welcome to the feast. Welcome to the banquet. I planted a garden and it's tasty. Right out of the gate, God tells man that he gets to eat and that the Lord is the one that prepared these meals for him. We think of Adam and Eve 
and speculate, because that's the only thing we can do, right? Uh, we speculate how intelligent they must have been. What would man be like without sin? What would man be like? The perfect human specimen, exactly what he was meant to be. And we think, you know, they were probably just gorgeous, uh, you know, physically, mentally, sharp as tacks. And what we see instead of all of that is that God made man hungry. Right from the get-go, hunger is not the result of the fall. He designed man to have an appetite. The first conversation that God and his, his best creation, second best man, his best was woman afterwards. She's twice refined, right? But mankind, okay? So the, the first conversation they have is not about theoretical physics, which I'm sure perfect man could have understood just fine. It wasn't about gardening methods, which would have been nice given where they lived. It wasn't about theology, which would seem very bible -y, very Christian. No, the first conversation is God offering food. He says, I want to feed you. God builds a universe in 19 verses, and the end of it all is setting a table. Then you have 1,089 chapters covering 66 books, and you know what's in the last chapter of the whole book? Among other things, a tree with fruit. What has God prepared for his people? It hasn't entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for his people, but it includes a meal. Now, every people group has a creation story, right? A creation myth. Uh, there's a creation account from the Babylonians, uh, which I shared in part a couple weeks ago that was written around the time of Hammurabi about the, their god Marduk. Okay, this was written at least as far back as Moses, to give you some uh, timeline perspective, maybe probably older even than Moses. And in their version of how the world was made, Marduk, a god, kills his parents to become the new big god, but all the lesser gods are hungry and they complain. And so Marduk says, I've got a great idea. I'll make a creature called man. He will make offerings to you and bring you food. And that's why people were made, to feed gods. Do you see the different take on food here from Genesis chapter 1? In one story, you have man created in order to feed gods. In another story, God makes man and then feeds him. When we come to the Lord, we acknowledge him as the giver of all good gifts. He is the one who feeds us. Now, Genesis 1 is the beginning. Now in Genesis 14, this is your second passage, we have another beginning, a kind of beginning, and a few firsts. Genesis is full of the first time you see certain things, right? The first time bread and wine are seen together in Scripture is in Genesis 14. And it's the first time the word priest is found in Scripture as well. It's a strange story of Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham's nephew, Lot, caused him a lot of trouble. Lot and his entire city had been attacked and captured by the armies of several different kings. Uh, Abraham gets together 318 of his closest friends and goes and defeats those armies, rescues the captives, sends them all home, and on the way back from this victory, on the way back to his tent, he comes to a place called the Valley of Kings, and he encounters what the scripture says is the priest of the Most High God. And this is 400 years before Leviticus was written, the Levitical priests, Aaron, any of that, okay? Genesis 14, starting in verse 18, says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that's Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. Okay, this is what's called a victory meal. You won the fight. Let's feast. Abraham drove out the other kings and established himself as a real force in the promised land. 
Now, the fulfillment of that victory of, of land wouldn't exist until later, Joshua, some 500 years later, entering into the promised land. But Abraham, the father of faith, has a foretaste of the victory that would come much later. It's impossible to miss the New Covenant connections with what's going on with Melchizedek and Abram. And the New Testament authors didn't miss it. The author of Hebrews has some things to say on this that you can go check out later. But even later, even other Old Testament theologians picked up the importance of this event. There's a priesthood that has nothing to do with the Mosaic Covenant. There's the Levitical priesthood, and then there's another kind of priesthood. There's something else that pre-exists Aaron, Levi, and any of that kind of temple worship. David wrote this in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we know from the New Testament that this applies to Christ. But we also know that David wrote it. And David offered sacrifices. That's not allowed, right? Kings being priests, that's not supposed to happen. 2 Samuel 8.18 says that David made his sons priests. Oh, that's, no, you can't, you can't do that. That's a big mistake. Not if they're priests of a different order. They're not Levitical priests. And neither are you. But you are a kingdom of priests. They are priests according to a different order, the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews, again, applies this to Christ. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Sounds like a guy I know. Salem, where Melchizedek is from, which could have been the place that would one day be called Jerusalem. Salem means peace. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Abraham's the father of faith, we're told. He is our ancestor in faith. And he has served a meal by a king priest, a king of righteousness and a king of priests and a king of peace. And the meal consists of bread, wine, and a blessing. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Melchizedek is clear in Scripture. He is our king priest, the king of righteousness, the king of peace who blesses us. And like God in the Garden of Eden, he feeds us. In the upper room, Jesus takes bread and wine. And then the apostles continued this habit and passed it down to us. Now people have wondered, why bread on this new Passover? It seems like he's reworking Passover, right? Why not lamb? Why don't every week we have lamb? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be better? Uh, but he, he's offering a priestly blessing that goes back much further than Passover. We'll look at Passover next here in a second, which is a meal that commemorates God's mercy, but Melchizedek's meal commemorates God's victory. Abraham won a great battle against overwhelming odds. He's in the Valley of Kings. Let's feast. Our bread and wine is also a commemoration of a great victory against the greatest of odds, and we eat in hope of its final fulfillment. We were dead, and one greater than Abraham defeated our enemy, death itself. He defeated sin. He's greater than the world. He saw Satan cast out of heaven, and he has promised to raise the dead. This is our victory meal. We are victorious, more than conquerors in Christ, and we await our final victory. We proclaim the Lord's death, a victorious death, until he comes in total victory. Our priest, who is according to the order of Melchizedek, has given us bread and wine and a blessing. Next, Passover in Exodus, Exodus 12. But 1 Corinthians 5, 7 really spells out the new covenant truth for us. Right there in black and white. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The Passover is about Jesus. I really like how we don't have to guess about what symbolizes what here. You know, we don't have to cross any, any boundaries into really questionable symbolism or allegory and wonder, like, is this a stretch? And like, you've probably heard people be like, look, this Old Testament passage that you don't understand, well, it's really about Jesus. And you're like, is it really, though? 
Like, it doesn't feel like Jesus. But in the New Testament, it says Christ is our priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. It says he is our Passover. We can take this as the apostles' doctrine. He is the fulfillment of all these things. We are right to find Christ in the Old Testament. As he said, these are they that speak of me. Or as he showed the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? All the things in the law and the prophets that spoke of him. Now back to Passover. You're familiar with the story, I'm sure. Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Moses is raised up as a deliverer. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no thanks. Ten plagues ensue. The final plague was the death of the firstborn. And the only way to avoid this judgment being visited on your house was to kill a lamb and paint its blood on the doorpost and lintel of your house. And then that evening, you would have a meal, a lamb dinner. You would eat that lamb inside your house. This was the definitive event in Israel's history, Passover. It was their origin story that explained how they became who they are. Why are you the way you are? Well, it all goes back to Passover. This is, uh, this is the story that gave their, uh, their people a national identity. And every year, Passover would be celebrated. It's their new year. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread together is, is this is the new beginning. This is how it all started, and this is how we're starting here. It was during this week of Passover when Jesus instituted the Last Supper and then goes to complete his role as the sacrificial lamb of God. More on this next week. Each year in Israel, this Passover was commemorated. It is called in Exodus 12, 14, a memorial meal. Jesus, with bread and wine, says that this is his memorial meal. Do this in remembrance of me, as a memorial to me. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, 13, we're told that the old covenant sacrifices that were offered year after year after year, were, there was a remembrance of sins every year. It's the same word for remembrance. Now, our better sacrifice, which was once and for all, is not a remembrance of sins. It's a remembrance of forgiveness. In coming to communion, we remember the cross, but it's not just an opportunity to, for you to remember the depravity of man or even your own sins that you need to clear up, though that is part of the self-examination process. What we are remembering is Christ's words, it is finished. We're remembering the victory of the cross and embracing it. Now let's talk about a memorial meal, because the way we usually think about a memorial meal is that it's a meal that helps us remember. And there's certainly some truth to that. That would happen. That's a good thing. But that's not the way the Bible talks about memorials, actually. The first memorial mentioned in Scripture, it's not Passover, it's a rainbow. Right? Genesis 9, 16. This is God speaking. He's telling Noah and his family, the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it, God speaking, I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Who's being reminded by the rainbow? God says it's him. Rather than being a reminder to you, it's a reminder to God. That's the way God describes it. All throughout Leviticus, there's this mention of a memorial portion, a grain offering that was a pleasing aroma. To who? The priest? The worshipers? No, to God. The New Testament talks about memorials in this direction. Acts 10, 31, you have... The centurion Cornelius says his alms and prayers went up before the Lord as a memorial. Now, God doesn't need help remembering. Okay, He doesn't need reminding. Uh, you're not going to you know, catch him from being distracted and say, no, look over here, quick. 
which if he doesn't need reminding, this must mean that he likes to be reminded. He doesn't need to hear the living creatures cry out, holy, 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 more than a few million times, right? But he does hear it eternally and allows it to continue because it is right and it is just. It is fitting for him to be praised with every second throughout all eternity. The correct understanding of the memorial, where it serves as more than a memory aid for people, but as an actual memorial offering towards God, this changes the orientation of a memorial meal. We remember Jesus. Yes, of course we do. But not only in an inward or backward way, not just to produce a mental state, as we recall historical events, we remember Christ in the presence of the living God and cry out to heaven to plead the promises of God on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. The memorial of the rainbow is a good comparison. Again, God said he would look on the rainbow and remember the covenant. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do it in remembrance of me. To remember Jesus is to remember the covenant. To offer this as a memorial to God, you are claiming Christ's promises. The inward look, the examination, that takes place before the meal. That takes place before communion. The meal itself is God-word. It is directed to the Father, reminding him of the covenant of blood that Jesus has made. It's a prayer. Father, accept the blood of Jesus for all my sins. Pass over my sins when you see the blood of Christ on me. I want Jesus. I have Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I am being united to Jesus. This is a prayer that is Godward, not just you looking at your own feelings. To get an idea of what this reminding God is like, because that can be uncomfortable, right? Reminding God, like, I want him to remember. I really do. Don't like the idea of a forgetful God. You don't have to have an idea of a forgetful God. But think of prayer. When you pray, you're reminded of things, probably. As you pray the Lord, he'll draw scriptures to your mind. He'll restore your faith in his character. Your, the assurances and his promises. But just because you think of things when you pray, that does not mean prayer is directed at you, right? It, you, you, remind, you can remind yourself of scriptures, you can remind yourself of his character, that's fine, but if, if it's only just you talking to you, that's not the kind of prayer that we need to be engaged in. Prayer is Godward. Our focus is on him. We are oriented towards heaven, Communion as a memorial is this way. We are reminded of the cross, of our Passover lamb. But our thoughts and our actions are not oriented exclusively to our own hearts. Our orientation of our soul is not just towards the historical event of the crucifixion that really happened. We are coming into the presence of the living God. We are orienting ourselves towards God himself. Okay, let's go to another Old Testament meal. Manna, the bread that comes down from heaven. Now, after Israel goes through the Passover, they go through the, the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, they're taken out of Egypt. But one of the things you notice after Israel is taken out of Egypt is that there's still a lot of Egypt left in Israel, right? Like, they aren't great people. Like, you get that far and you're like, oh, you're not the good guys. Oh, <laughs> I misread that, okay. Uh, they complain so much. They want things to be different. They want to go back and be slaves in Egypt. And that guy from that tribe is looking at me funny. They complain about everything. It's the worst. And, and this is not good. And in Numbers chapter 11, we read that God judges their complaining with fire. 
And in Numbers 14, 27, God says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? But early on in Exodus 16, when they were fresh out of Egypt, they complain about what they're going to eat and what they're going to drink. And God gives them water from a rock, which 1 Corinthians says is Christ, and bread from heaven, which John says is Christ, or really actually that Christ is the true bread that comes down from heaven. The manna was given to a complaining, grumbling people. So is Jesus. Praise the Lord. The people don't recognize manna. Its name means, what is it? People didn't recognize Jesus. But the Father sends bread to his hungry children, his hungry, ignorant, complaining children. And the Father has sent us his Son to satisfy all our needs and to quiet all the cravings of our needy souls. The most important explanation of man is in John 6, which we'll spend more time on next Sunday. But I'll read you one passage. John chapter 6, verse 48 through 51. This is Jesus speaking. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I am the bread of life. God has created man, a good thing, but a hungry thing. God has given him food. It's been a long time since man was good, but God keeps feeding us. Manna sustained a homeless people, brought out of Egypt, but not yet established in their homes, in the, the promised land. We are still homeless. We have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness. We've crossed the Red Sea. We are a new nation, a holy priesthood. But Peter says we're sojourners and pilgrims looking for a city with foundations like Abraham, right? Hebrews mentions that. A city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. We celebrate communion, anticipating a kingdom that we are already a part of, but that we need sustenance for to reach in the end. We are sustained by communion until we reach that place with foundations. The bread, Christ, our true bread, sustains us in our wilderness wanderings. Next passage, number five. After the Exodus, Israel crosses the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness of Sinai. They complain about food. You know, God appears on Mount Sinai. It's, it's quite an event. Smoke, fire, loud thunderings, trumpets, uh, and a terrified populace. Uh, the law is given, and it's scary. But more importantly, at this mount, a covenant is made. And in Exodus 24, you have God and the people ratifying a covenant. Altars are built. Sacrifices are made. And then in Exodus 24, verse 7, it says this, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. The blood of the covenant. Now you know what we're talking about. This is very clearly what Jesus and the apostles have in mind when Jesus takes wine and says, for this is the blood of the new covenant. The disciples missed a lot, but I'm going to guess they caught the parallels here. In Exodus, the ratification of the covenant did not end with the sprinkling of blood. Rather, it ended with a meal in the presence of God. Exodus 24, still, verse 9 through 11 says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heaven in its clarity. 
But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. Reading of scripture, the blood of the covenant, then a meal with God. The upper room is this mountain in its fulfillment. As the people of God under a new covenant, we still have this order, the reading of the covenant or testament from Latin, a meal before God. In the upper room at the meal with Jesus, Jesus introduces the blood of the new covenant. Now it says in Exodus 24 that they saw God. That's interesting. That raises some questions, doesn't it? How they see God? Isn't he invisible? Isn't God too holy to be seen? Yes. John 1.18 gives us all the theology we need here. It says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. They saw the God of Israel, but no one has seen God. This is reconciled only in Trinity. The Father remains unseen, but when Philip, in the upper room at that last supper, says, show us the Father, he gets it. He's like, we're in the upper room right now. This is the holy meal. This is the new covenant. What, what do we do here? He says, show us the Father. We get to see God now, right? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who did the 70 elders see and Moses see? They saw God the Son. In the upper room, when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he was echoing this passage not only in word but in practice. The meal the disciples ate, they ate in the presence of God, seeing him. And of course, that was the important part of the meal, the importance of the, the meal, of all the holy meals, of all the covenant meals of Israel, is that they're eating in the presence of God. They saw God and they ate and drank. Next week, we'll go to Luke and see the road to Emmaus, and you sort of have this happen in reverse. It was in the breaking of bread that the two disciples recognized who it was they were talking to. In Exodus, you read, they saw God, and they ate and drank. In Luke, in Luke they ate and drank, and then they see God. And we come to the Lord's table both because we have tasted and seen. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we come expectantly in faith, expecting to see when we eat. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, and my stomach too while you're at it. <laughs> now last, there's the bread of the presence. After all of this, he sends the, gives the law on the mountain, and it's immediately after this holy meal that the 70 elders enjoy in the presence of a God who they saw. God gives instructions for how he would be worshipped. He gives plans for the tabernacle, starting with the inside furniture. And so directly after seeing heaven opened and seeing God, Moses is given instructions for an earthly replica of that heavenly sanctuary. And there's three things inside the tabernacle. There's the ark, the gold lampstand, and a table for bread. Now in Exodus 25, where all these building instructions are given, the part you skip over when you do your Bible in a year thing, yeah, okay, I'll just fill you in on the details, I know you're not going to read it. Um, there's, there's also given instructions for cups and bowls for wine. And, and so you have in this holy place where only a priest could enter, there's bread and, apparently, wine. Twelve loaves of bread, one for each tribe. Now, the name of this bread, it's been difficult to translate and understand. It's sometimes called showbread. You've probably heard that before. Um, the more literal translation could be bread of the presence, because the most important part of the meal is who you're having it with, right? Or, or even a literal translation is bread of the face, now, let's try to keep some continuity here. In Exodus 24, they saw God and they ate and drank. Then God says, this is how we keep this relationship going. You see me. If you see God, you have to worship. How do we do it? Well, I'm going to tell you how. You build a tabernacle because dwelling with you has always been my plan. My presence, the presence that you just saw will be there. I'm going to be with you. 
And you're going to eat there and drink there, because that's been my plan from the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. The fellowship that God maintained with a worshiping Israel was maintained in part through priests eating bread and wine in the presence of God. This bread would be eaten as a holy meal only by priests and David in that one story, remember? Uh, the leftovers. But Leviticus 24 says that they were to eat the bread in a holy place once a week every Sabbath day and replace it on the same day. It's the only sac sacrifice specifically for, sab for priests on the Sabbath where they would go and eat this meal on the Sabbath. It's their... It's, it's to show everyone how much rest God has given. The bread is called a sacrifice, which is kind of interesting because it would be what was called an unbloody sacrifice, but it was still offered to God as something holy. It was also said to be a means of maintaining the covenant God had made with Israel. It, was, it is also called a memorial, just like the Passover. Bread and wine, which is called the bread of the presence, eaten weekly, in a holy place, as a holy meal, as a memorial offering, which is a sign of the covenant. If this isn't ringing all the New Testament bells in your head, I don't know what's wrong with you, okay? Like, all this is all this is right out of the Gospels. Also, let's make a note here that it is a most holy thing that doesn't seem to be harmed at all by a weekly observance. It doesn't seem to become less special because they do it more than once a month. And we can see in the rabbinical writings that the bread was reverence. It became part of Hebrew thought, a kind of lens through which they understood other passages even. Uh, one rabbi wrote with conviction that the bread and wine that Melchizedek brought to Abraham, well, that was the bread of the presence. And you're like, no, it wasn't. That was hundreds of years before any of this. And the, the, the way they figured it was Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, right? And if you worship God, you got to worship him the right way, right? That includes bread and wine. There you go. So they concluded that that bread that Abraham had was the bread of the presence. And he was being ordained as a priest in being able to eat that as a holy thing. In the Mishnah, which is a, the writings of rabbinical traditions, they write about how in Solomon's temple, there were two tables outside the temple. And one was marble and one was gold. And you brought the bread into the temple, you could put, place it on the marble shelf. But if you're uh, excuse me, taking the bread out of the temple, it had been consecrated, it could only go on the gold table. And taking the bread out of the temple was actually something that was done publicly. Uh, this isn't something you read of in Leviticus or in Chronicles about Solomon's temple. It's just a tradition that arose afterwards, probably in the second temple uh, period that was built by um, Nehemiah and those guys. But the Babylonian Talmud, it tells us this. They, the priests, used to lift the golden table up and exhibit the bread of the presence on to those who came up for the festivals, saying to them, Behold, God's love for you. And that would, they would actually take something out of the holy place that had been made holy and show it to the people who had come to the feast. No one could eat it because only priests could eat it. If this wasn't so well documented, it might sound suspect. It sounds like a weird thing that they, they started to do. But it happened and it was going on when Jesus and his disciples were visiting Jerusalem. And there's something we can glean from this for our own bread and wine as a memorial meal that the apostles shared. One thing, to consider covenant is to consider love. To say this is God's love for you as a memorial of a covenant, that's appropriate when the covenant is a covenant of love, like marriage. When Jesus says this cup is the new covenant in my blood and do this in remembrance of me, we recognize that his sacrifice is love. He loves us. Jesus's body and blood are his love for us. But why would the priest bring out the bread and not the lampstand or the ark or something else? 
Let me make a suggestion. In Exodus 23, 17, and Exodus 34, 23, there's three annual festivals that are uh, a required attendance for all the men in Israel. And in most translations, it says something like, three times a year you shall appear before God. A more literal translation would go something like this. Three times a year shall all your males see the face of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. So the rabbis, you know, they're very literal. Jesus ran into some problems with that, right? They take things extremely literally. Even if they're not taking things seriously, they'll take it literally. So the rabbis read this. They conclude correctly, no one can see God and live. And they draw the parallel between the face of the Lord, which no one can see, and the bread of the face. And they say, well, people can see bread, right? It's not literally the face of God. They never thought that, but it's a visible sign of the love of God. So it's the best we've got. We'll show them the bread. Now, when we take communion, we are coming into the presence of the God who feeds us, who has promised to be Emmanuel, God with us, who has promised his presence to be with us now and always. He needs nothing from us. We weren't created to serve him. We were created to enjoy him, give him glory, and receive from him, because somehow that actually gives him glory. <laughs> Rather than offering a meal, we are served by our priest, who is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And when we take communion, we are speaking God's words back to him, offering a memorial to him saying, you said it is finished, remember? You said you're going to forgive, remember? You have said welcome to me on the merits of Christ's sacrifice, remember? That's why I'm here. When we take communion, we are celebrating a Passover, confessing that we are covered with blood, the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb, and judgment will not stop here, but rather pass over us. We're also participating in a new exodus. We are trusting the Lord to lead us out of our Egypt. When we take communion, we are eating and drinking before a covenant-making God. Like the 70 elders who ate and drank and saw God, we are eating and drinking Godward. The orientation is towards heaven, hoping to catch a glimpse of invisible things. We eat and drink with the prayer, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We want to see the love of God. This is the new Passover, the new covenant meal, the new manna in our wilderness, the new bread of the presence, and we want to know our Passover lamb, remember the covenant, and enjoy the presence, not just of bread, but of God himself. So with that hope in our hearts, with this appetite and hunger for the God who feeds us and covers us and ministers to us, and reveals himself to us, let us continue to prepare ourselves to meet with him. And next week, we're going to look at New Testament passages pertaining to communion, but we're going to do more than that. We're going to do more than talk about Jesus. We're going to meet with Jesus. And I, I trust that the Holy Spirit has been working in our hearts towards this end. I have every confidence that he has been working in your hearts to prepare you to meet with him in this meal. Do you know why I have such confidence? Because I look in scripture and I see that he has been preparing to meet with people around bread and wine for a long, long time. I see the beginning of scripture, God longing to feed his creatures. I look at the end of scripture, the offering of food. There's a banquet in heaven. And in between Eden and the heavenly banquet, Christ, our good shepherd, is still leading us in green pastures. And that's the stuff sheep like to eat. He is still preparing a table for us. So as he is preparing to meet with you in the person of Jesus Christ, you can prepare yourselves. Next week, we're going to have communion. 
We're going to receive Christ, and he is waiting to meet with you because he loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, you love us. And any time we say we love you, we're really just repeating back the words we've heard you speak over and over again since even before we had conscious thought. It's your love for us that we're feasting on and rejoicing in. Jesus, be our all in all, be our satisfaction, be the feast that we have an appetite for. Let us hunger and thirst for you and nothing less. Bless your church. Bless us with the right appetites. Bless us with the right satisfactions. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, after we dismiss you, there will be people up here praying. Um, if anyone has a prayer request or need for prayer, please come up and receive prayer. Uh, go ahead and stand up. <laughs> usually do that automatically. I don't know why that didn't happen. This. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent. <laughs> <laughs>